Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Next, a great science story. They've been hiding underground for 17 years, and very soon, the swarm will hit multiple states. The brood 10 cicadas will be all over the place beginning in late April or early May. And while they might pose an inconvenience as they come out in the billions, they are a crucial part of the ecosystem. For more on this once every 17 year phenomenon and why you don't want to be mowing your lawn when they come out, we'll speak to Dr. Sebastian Alejandro Echeverri, scientist and contributor to NBC News. So these are periodical cicadas. They're different from the cicadas that are here every summer. These are the special ones that only come out every 17 or 13 years. There's multiple species, some of them that have 17 year lifespans, some of them have 13 year lifespans. And what they're doing underground is that they're growing very, very slowly. All cicadas drink sap from trees. And when they're babies, they drink it from the tree roots. So 17 years ago, I had to look up a lot of things about 2004. because <laughs> My memory from back then was fuzzy. I was still a kid. Right. Uh, 17 years ago, they hatched from eggs that were laid in tree branches. That's what the moms do at the end of the summer. And they jump down to the soil, they dig down, and they find a tree root, and they start feeding on it. And they're just drinking that sap for years and years and years, growing large enough until they're ready to come out. But the thing is, it's not that it takes them 17 years to grow big enough that they're ready to come out and shed their skin and become adults and start singing and everything. They've actually evolved to wait that long so that they can all come out together. One of the really cool things that I found when talking to cicada scientist Dr. Chris Simon was the origins of like how this really weird lifestyle came about. Because like most animals don't do this, right? Like most animals, they just breed when they have a chance and they come out when they have a chance. And like adults are kind of here and there and you see them, you see the babies, you see the adults, you see the juveniles kind of all mixed together. In the world, it's only cicadas and then one species of millipedes in Japan. Those are the only animals that live this way. And for the cicadas, the ones here in North America, because they're only found in North America, it's like a very special thing that we have here that only we can see. Actually, it was millions of years ago when the ice ages were around. It was so cold that the trees were growing very slowly. And so at the time, they had to evolve just to take a lot longer to grow up. So they had enough food. They just had to eat longer for more years. But then at a certain point, it became, well, okay, the more cicadas that are out at the same time, the safer we are because they have this strategy of survival, which is like basically safety in numbers in that (laughs) they just try to come out as many as possible. And then the ones that get eaten, get eaten. But if there's enough of them, there's enough to survive. Is the full lifespan of these cicadas 17 years? Do they die shortly after they come out? They're coming out now to party and find a mate. That's what all the singing is about, all the loud noise. Yeah. It's the three species of 17-year cicadas. They're all coming out mixed together. What will happen is males from each species will pick a tree that's called a chorus tree, and they'll all fly there together. They'll sit in the top of the branches and sing as loud as possible. And their songs are different enough that the females can recognize, oh, hey, that's my species over there. And they will fly to that tree, and then the males will try to do a different song that's like a courtship song. And in a few months, um, after the mate, 
the females will lay their eggs in tree branches, like I mentioned. And then a few months later, like at the end of the summer, the eggs will hatch and the babies will tumble down from the treetops, land on the ground safely, and then start digging to begin it all over again. So So most of their life is underground. They just have like a few weeks to really enjoy the sun. They are harmless. They don't bite. They don't do anything. It's just a little creepy, maybe because it's like billions of of bugs, billions of cicadas out there. What states are in for this? Like who's going to get hit really hard by this? There's kind of like three like epicenters. One is around like D.C. and like the surrounding states. That's a pretty decent sized population of the brood 10 cicadas. There's another one down by Georgia and like Eastern Kentucky. And then there's another center that's like Southwest Indiana, Illinois area. It's kind of a big cluster. So if you're in that area, one thing you can do is if you go to the University of Connecticut's Cicada website or another website called cicadamania.com, you can see a map of where they came out in 2004. And that's probably where they're going to be now. So if you want to have a sense of, can I see these animals or I won't be able to, (laughs) that's where you find out. One thing I did want to add about Obviously, for some people, it's a lot of animals, a lot of bugs. It can be overwhelming. They're only going to be here for a week. This is their only chance to mate, so let them have that. But there was some advice that I got from one of the scientists that unfortunately didn't make it into the article, and it's that they're really attracted to noise, particularly ones that sound like other cicadas. But there are a few machines that we use that actually sound really similar to them. So lawnmowers in particular and cement cutters were mentioned by name as things that they will think are like cicadas singing to them and fly towards. Wow. So, so, so don't, don't mow, mow your, your lawn. lawn. <laughs> yeah. Just, just give it like for, they have a few weeks, let them have their yeah. weeks, let them just sing and then mow your lawn. That's um, crazy. Because otherwise they'll, they'll be like, oh, hey, there's a cicada down there. I'm going to go hang out with yeah. them. Yeah. Dr. Mm-hmm. Sebastian Alejandro Echeverri, freelance journalist and scientist, contributor to NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, no problem. I uh, hope y'all enjoyed learning about these cool animals. Something you'll be seeing more of pretty soon, the White House is planning a wide-reaching campaign aimed at getting those that are skeptical of the vaccines on board. It will be targeting young people, people of color, and conservatives. A recent focus group by a veteran GOP pollster was just conducted, and it showed that to get these GOP voters on board, it will be best to keep politics out of it and provide as much information as possible so they can make informed decisions. They would much rather hear from doctors and definitely don't want to hear from politicians, even if it's former President Trump. For more on how to win over some vaccine skeptics, we'll speak to Dan Diamond, national health reporter at The Washington Post. That focus group was one of the more interesting experiences I've had during the coronavirus pandemic. It was virtual, so there were folks from about 15 states around the country, uh, about 20 Republicans, all Trump voters. One of them uh, dropped off the call, so ended up with 19, but for about two and a half hours, They were presented with arguments by prominent Republicans, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, Senator Bill Cassidy, the Republican from Louisiana, Brad Wenstrup, the uh, congressman who's head of the House Doctors Caucus, and then Tom Frieden, who was the head of the Centers for Disease Control under President Obama for eight years. Lawmakers mostly struck out. It was Dr. Frieden who won over many members of the group by just sticking to the facts, acknowledging what he knew and didn't know about the uncertain long-term effects of coronavirus and even the vaccine, but really hammering home that people who didn't get the shot were putting themselves at more risk than people who were exposing themselves 
to the risk of getting the virus. You know, the participants were pretty adamant that they believed that coronavirus was real. So they, they didn't weren't saying it was a hoax or anything. And they didn't want to come off as anti-vaxxers. They said their hesitation really had to do with the unknown long-term effects. It's a brand new vaccine. The pandemic just happened. So we don't have that data. But that was one of the things. And then really the politicization of the entire thing is what turned them off a lot. Government scientists and politicians, they felt were misleading them throughout this whole thing. I think there's been a misnomer the past number of months that people who don't want the vaccine, that they're all against vaccines. That's not the case in my reporting, certainly from the focus group. Yes, there are Americans who don't believe that vaccines work, which I think is a sad state of affairs. But in this case, it really is the fact that the vaccine appeared so quickly. And what Dr. Frieden made sure to emphasize, there were years of research leading up to the breakthroughs that happened last year. And one reason the vaccines were developed so fast was red tape was removed. So it wasn't that the process was changed. People still got the vaccine in a trial. There were still checks on the data and the science. It just happened faster because they got rid of what usually are these long periods of waiting that happen with other scientific developments. And then this other piece, the politicization, the politics of coronavirus. For a lot of Americans, last year, the election campaign was decided by coronavirus. And people who voted for Joe Biden believed that Donald Trump, with a lot of good evidence, I think, did not do a good job managing the coronavirus pandemic. People who voted for Donald Trump disproportionately thought that he did the best he could. And that came through in the focus group. People thought Trump, in some cases, thought he did an amazing job, they said, in responding to the pandemic. The Democrats used the virus to try and win a political game last year. So I think that's one reason why Trump voters are so skeptical. They believe the virus has been used as a political tool, even though they believe it exists. They're worried that the vaccine is now just the latest in Democratic efforts, even though there's no evidence to suggest that. One quick note on the vaccine, because we've been talking about it so much on the podcast. These mRNA vaccine platforms in the case of Pfizer and Moderna and the viral vector technology in the case of Johnson & Johnson, these platforms have been worked on for 20 years, more even in some cases. So this was the opportunity to adjust it for the need right now, which was the coronavirus. So, yes, they have been in development for a long time. And, And as you said, red tape was cut, not corners. So that's important to note. So what did they learn about messaging that would work for these types of voters? Because I think they even asked at one point, you know, would a message from President Trump work? And they said they didn't even really care for that. A doctor or family members were more likely to persuade them. The hope was that a recent ad from four former presidents, President Obama, President Bush, President Clinton, President Jimmy Carter, that the four of them would a, a unified effort win some more skeptics over. But when this ad that appeared last week was shown to the Trump voters, they had a really negative reaction. Maybe that's predictable. Donald Trump wasn't in the ad. But what they said was, we don't need to hear from any more politicians telling us that this is our duty to get the shot. We've heard from enough politicians over the past year. The idea also of President Trump making a personal appeal, that's come up a lot in recent days. Tony Fauci, the government scientist, He's made the argument that President Trump could step forward and by simply telling people to get a shot, they would. The voters in the focus group said they weren't opposed to hearing from Trump, but really he didn't matter as much as hearing from their own doctors, 
or from their own spouses. And I think that just hammers home. Politicians are not the ideal messengers for public health information. Dan Diamond, national health reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me back. Stay safe. Finally for this week, the signatures have been submitted. The recall effort against California Governor Gavin Newsom has submitted over 2 million signatures to be verified. Only 1.5 million signatures are needed for this recall effort to qualify for the ballot. And the fight is on now for Newsom's political life. He's already begun a press tour to defend his handling of the state's pandemic response and get ready for more ads to flood the state. Newsom is pinning the recall effort on Trump supporters and opportunists, and the other side wants to keep it all about Newsom's closures of businesses. For more on what to expect on this recall fight, we'll speak to David Siders, national political correspondent at Politico. For a long time, this recall initiative, you know, they come up all the time in California. People circulate petitions to recall officials, and it just doesn't happen because it's really hard to get that number of signatures. But even Newsom's team acknowledges it's, it seems all but certain that this election will qualify. And so, yeah, we're going to have a bonanza on our hands here for the next few months. You mentioned how recall efforts pop up all the time. I, I saw him, I, I believe it was on CNN. It might have been one of his other hits because he's been doing a few. You know, he made mention specifically, this is the sixth time that they've tried to recall me in my like 25 months or so in office. So first off, I mean, <laughs> Joseph, there's a, a concerted effort to get him out, out of office, but also things were different this time. What changed? Obviously, I know the handling of the pandemic was a big thing, but you know, there's a lot of different things that his opponents are going to use as ammo against him. I mean, it's a weird talking point, right, to tell people how many times folks have wanted to recall you. But it, it is right that this is the sixth uh, attempt. I, I guess the biggest thing that's different is that there was a time extension. So one of the reasons it's so hard to qualify an initiative is because you only have, a, I think it's a 160-day window to gather signatures. And because of the pandemic, this group of signature gatherers convinced a judge to give them an extra 120 days. So that happened in November, and that was like, you know, that, that, that was the month really that this campaign blossomed because they got that extension. That meant big donors got excited, and so there was a paid operation to supplement, a uh, paid signature gathering operation to supplement the volunteer drive. And that was also the month that Newsom decided to go to the French Laundry, that Tony restaurant um, where he was photographed at a non-socially distanced event while also telling people not to gather for the holidays. So really that was kind of the month this came together. And you couple that with, uh, as I mentioned before, you know, the pretty strict closures for businesses and churches. You know, I live in Los Angeles and I saw firsthand kind of the outrage that happened when those extensions were made. You know, restaurants had already been able to open back up a little bit and then they took it all away. And man, I saw that really heat up at that moment. People were just really frustrated because, you know, their livelihoods were at stake now even more than ever. The health thing had already happened, but now they are losing businesses, you know, so it was really tough for them. So what is the strategy going to be for Gavin Newsom and his team? I know he's building that team up right now, and we're just going to be seeing, you know, a big ad blitz, television, radio, TV. He's, he's going to be all over the place, but what, how do they sell him? How does he, you know, make his case for staying in office? Well, he will do all of that. And I think that they will spend a lot of money and he will be all over the place. But I think that how he mostly makes the case is he just waits. And I think there's broad consensus that the electorate in California, first of all, the mood is not as dire as 
it was in 2003, for example. Uh, Newsom's disapproval ratings are nowhere near as close you know, what Gray Davis's were. And I think it's reasonable to assume that by the time this election's held, October, November, December, whenever that is, that more people will be vaccinated, caseloads will be down even from where they are today, and probably people will be in a better a better mood, and that helps the incumbent. So, and the other thing that he banks on is that you look at the electorate in California, it's 24% Republican. So it's not impossible that the election goes against Newsom and that he gets recalled, but it will require just about everything going right for Republicans for that to happen. Yeah, I mean, he's really going to be fighting two wars, right? One, the recall effort, and then two, the pandemic and making sure all of that gets back in order and the economy gets roaring again, as you mentioned, so that hopefully in voters' minds, they say, hey, well, maybe it wasn't so bad after all. What about the proponents of the recall? How do they feel about the effort? I'm sure they feel good because it looks like they have enough signatures, but how do they feel about their prospects throughout this? Well, they've been pretty uh, bullish on their prospects the whole way. And those people deserve a lot of credit. It's, It's remarkable what they've done to collect that many signatures at a fairly inexpensive rate. You know, they didn't have a lot of money. The lead proponents were not terribly well-known figures in California politics. And so they're clearly excited about this thing. And I think what, you know, now establishment Republicans looking at this are seeing is they have to hope that they don't have a hugely divided GOP ticket. They can't have six, seven, eight really well-known Republicans beating each other up. And they have to push back against Newsom's effort to frame this as a a Trump campaign, because if this campaign becomes Gavin Newsom versus Trump again, well, Trump lost by what, 30 percent or something, uh, percentage points rather in in November. I mean, that's not a good place for Republicans to be. If the recall effort is successful, you know, we already have a couple of Republican candidates who've thrown their hat in the ring. What about the Democratic side? Has anybody stepped up as a possible contender? I know, I know everybody's, you know, uh, backing uh, Newsom. So for somebody to step out now would be a little weird. But but yeah, has there been buzz about anybody? The buzz is about whether there should be anybody. And probably a Democrat will be on that ballot. Probably more than 100 people will be on that ballot. It's, it's ridiculously easy to qualify. The question strategically is, is it better to have a fallback option on the second question? And the, what you have to weigh there is that if there is a Democrat, because, because the recall is two questions, right? It's do you want to recall the governor? And then if a majority says they want to recall the governor, it's who do you want instead? So if Democrats all get behind Newsom and nobody is on that second ballot, it probably helps Newsom on that first ballot. But if it doesn't work and voters vote to recall Newsom and there's not a Democrat waiting on the second ballot, that can be a problem, too. So that's that's a, uh, a tricky thing, I think, for, for Democrats to figure out. It's going to be an interesting time. All eyes are going to be on California across the country. California is going to be inundated with money, ad money. Get ready to see a whole lot of Gavin Newsom defending his record. So we'll be monitoring all of that. David Siders, National Political Correspondent at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow the Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of the Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. <laughs> 